Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Daniel Lieberman is a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University, a pioneering researcher on the evolution of human physical activity, and the author of a fascinating new book called Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Today, we talk about why it's so very natural to dislike exercise, even though it's good for us. Lieberman explains how the instinct to avoid it is normal, which, to be honest, I found very validating. He also shares some ways we can be more compassionate to that voice in our head badgering us to work out more. He explains some of the conflicting information around how exercise and diet interact, and we talk about different social motivators that help get people out the door. We also talk about why there is no universal prescription and how much exercise a person should get, despite how we've been inclined to medicalize it in the culture. He offers one simple but profound truth instead. Some is always better than none, even if that some is very little, and it's never too late to start. There is no one dose of exercise. And that's like saying, how much happiness should we have, right? It's, it doesn't work that way, right? So, some is better than none, and more is a little bit better. But it all depends on who you are and what your goals are. Are you, are you old? Are you young? Are you super busy? Do you have two jobs? Do you have lots of kids? Are you worried about Alzheimer's? Are you worried about heart disease? Are you worried about diabetes? Are you worried about osteoporosis? I mean, you know, we're all different. And so trying to come up with a simple prescription is not going to work. And furthermore, what really matters is what you enjoy. Okay, let's get to my chat with Daniel Lieberman. I would not classify myself as a lazy person, but since COVID, I feel like there are two camps of people, those who have embraced exercise, like it's a full-time job and have the six packs to prove it. And then those of us who are staring at our Fitbits and the like, and really aggrieved by the fact that we've managed to only walk to the kitchen four times and that's it. And I'm in the latter camp. I just want, I'm just giving it up right here, but it was very nice to read that that's my biological imperative and why waste energy if you don't have to. Yeah, I think we're we're often very uncompassionate both to others as well as to ourselves. I mean, it's it's an instinct to avoid unnecessary exertion and and it takes a lot of willpower and and skill and and help from you know, we have to help each other in order to to do this because we we live in a world that's that's very weird. We have to now choose to exercise and that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. No, absolutely. I loved this particular paragraph, you you don't mind that if I read it, where you write, beyond spreading confusion and doubt, the most pernicious consequence of many myths about exercise, especially the one about how it's normal to exercise, is that we fail to help people to exercise and then unfairly shame and blame them for not doing it. 
everyone knows they should exercise, but few things are more irritating than being told to exercise how much and in what way. Extorting us to just do it is about as helpful as telling a drug addict to just say no. If exercise is supposedly natural, why is it that no one, despite years of effort, has found an effective way to help more people to overcome deep-seated natural instincts to avoid optional exertion? And that was very comforting, (laughs) I have to say, because it's true. If given the choice, unless I'm in a phase of being exercise addicted, which has certainly happened to me, then I I don't want to go anywhere. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's what we evolved to do. I mean, you know, until recently, people had to be physically active because that's that's how we lived. That's how we survived. Every day you had to go out and, and hunt and gather and, and get food and take care of your kids. And, you know, there were no machines to do work for you. And there were no cars. There was no public transportation. There was no retirement. There was no weekends. And so that's how we lived our lives. And but 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 the energy that we acquired, we just barely got enough, right? And um, it was hard to get a surplus. And so under those kinds of conditions, spending energy needlessly for, you know, say a five-mile jog in the morning was a bad idea, right? It doesn't actually (laughs) help you do what nature really cares about, which is having babies, right? That's ultimately what life is about. It's about food in and babies out. That's the equation of life. And, And so... It's it's normal. It's natural to you know that little that little voice in in your head that says yeah, take the elevator or you know or don't go for that run. It's no fun out there, right? That's a normal yeah. instinct, and we need help understanding that normal voice and also helping being compassionate about it rather than judgmental about it. Right. So I thought that that was very comforting and assuring. Thank you very much for not necessarily condoning my inertia, but recognizing it as a basic human instinct. But I also thought it was so clarifying sort of the exploration of the evidence that we have about, I guess, modern hunter-gatherers or people who still are subsistence hunters, et cetera. And the fact that there's they also try to conserve energy. And it's not, I think we've all been sort of bombarded with this idea that our ancestors were effectively constantly moving, climbing, you know, rock climbing, who knows what they were throwing rocks, doing essentially a modern Olympics every single day. And the reality is that they're more active, but not substantially more active. That's right. Yeah. I, I call it the myth of the, athle- of the athletic savage, sort of after Rousseau's myths of the, of the noble savage, right? And it's this idea that, you know, our ancestors were jacked sort of super athletes who just got out of bed and just ran ultra marathons and lifted giant rocks over their heads and all that. And it's just not true. In fact, it would have been disadvantageous for them to be super strong and, and disadvantageous for them to, to kind of waste too much needless energy, which just doesn't mean that they didn't occasionally do it, but they did it when it was important and valuable to them and rewarding for them. So, so basically, I think you know, we evolved to be physically active for two reasons, right? When it was necessary and when it was rewarding. And, mm-hmm. and if you look at the vast sweep of, of, of human evolution and you look across different cultures, that's when people generally do it. And, and to that, and, and we're actually no different. It's just that we've come up with some very strange ways to make it necessary and, and rewarding. So can you explain, I thought this was fascinating, sort of this the idea of pals and how what our pal likely looks like versus our ancestors versus the people mm. who are the most active yeah, so a pal is just the physical activity level pal, and it's a it's a very simple way of measuring how active someone is or a species is. So it's 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 the ratio of how much energy you're spending in a in a in a day, your total energy budget, right, divided by how much energy you would spend if you were just in, in bed doing nothing, right? What we call your basal metabolic rate, and if you're you know, if you're if you're purely in bed, basically doing almost nothing, right? Just like with the remote control, and you can never get out of bed all day long. Your 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 pal, what might be about one point two, right? That's very 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 inactive. Typically, physically inactive American, a typically sedentary person, has a pal of about one point six, one point seven. Hunter gatherers have pals of. You know, the, and we were all hunter-gatherers until recently, until 600 generations ago before farming. Everybody was a hunter-gatherer. Hunter-gatherers have pals of about 1.8, 1.9 to 2.1, something like that. So we're about 15% less physically active than typical hunter-gatherers, which is way less than, say, a Tour de France athlete or, you know, Michael Phelps or somebody like that. They have pals of like three or something like that. Crazy, right? So, so the important point about that is that – oh, and by the way, chimpanzees have pals of like 1.5. 
So a sedentary American is still actually more active than a typical wild chimpanzee. So that's, I think, an interesting fact. But, <laughs> but, but, but hunter-gatherers, you know, physically active people, right, until recently, weren't crazy active. I mean, they're, you know, their average, if you actually measure how much time they're, they're active in a day, it's like two, two to three hours, right, of right. moderate to vigorous activity. They're, it's not like they're, they're, they're going crazy all day long, you know, doing really, really hard activity. I mean, I mean, they're working, you know, they're walking and they're carrying and they're digging and they're doing all kinds of sorts of things like that. But they're not, you know, crazy physically active sort of CrossFit type workouts doing every, every day. <laughs> and so if you do sort of one hour of exercise a day, you'd, you'd be the equivalent. Pretty much, yeah. If your typical sort of reasonably inactive American managed to exercise about an hour a day, you'd be pretty much up to the level of a hunter-gatherer. Yeah, so interesting. And then obviously, pals of men are slightly higher than women. Is that just because they're they're bigger and they're burning more calories. No, it's just men tend to be a little bit more active. It's not. It's it's okay. it, it sort of it, it it standardizes for for body size. That's what that because basal oh, metabolic rate is really essentially a function of how big you are. There's a slight difference between men and women in terms of how much of our weight we are as is fat versus versus muscle, but and that has some effects on metabolism. But that's a that's a kind of complicated issue. We don't want to get into all those details. Well, we could if you want to. <laughs> Probably don't want to. Probably in the weeds. Although not to do a total sidetrack, but I'm sure you saw the New York Times article this week that was talking, or last week that was talking about discovering graves of women who were Oh, yes. Oh, that's such a, yeah. Well, I I read that article. It was a a very cool article in, in the, in the, in the Andes there. You know, we have this idea that only men hunt, but you know, if you start looking in the ethnographic record, there's plenty of evidence that women, women hunt in all kinds of different societies. And, and there's a really cool archeological evidence that from the Andes that, that women, you know, played important roles as hunters. And and I, you know, I've seen that in ethnographies in, in, in other parts of the world, in Australia and Africa, you know, some of the sort of gender roles that we, you know, stereotype gender roles are, are just that. They're stereotyped gender roles. They're, you know, the, the truth is always much more complicated than the, than the stereotype. I know. And it's interesting just thinking about how dominant that those gender stereotypes are and the programming and the way that we now socialize our children, right? You know, women tend to befriend and gather and men hunt. It's so pernicious, particularly if it turns out that it's not true. Yeah. And, and, then, it, and then it, you know, it, it really does have enormous effects on how, how kids grow up and what they're, what they think is expected of them. It's, you know, we, we really do need to fight these stereotypes. Yeah. Which I also thought it was fascinating that you included you know, a whole chapter on fighting and aggression, because that's probably where socially we see the biggest distinction, you know, uh, boys more aggressive and physical with each other, girls socialized to be not aggressive at all to the point of sort of it coming out sideways, right? And Right. And of course, what we often equate is that those kinds of aggressive interactions with exercise, which they're not, right? And so, you know, if you look at a lot of sports, a lot of sports, their evolutionary history, their their social history, isn't about getting physical activity. It's about teaching combat skills. Think about the Olympics, all the things that are we really care about in the Olympics. You know, faster, higher, stronger. You know, a lot of those 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 competitions evolved to to help. You know, distinguish who would be the who would be the best warriors, right? Back in the Bronze Age, right? And you know, we tend to value human physical characteristics that aren't necessarily all that important for health or survival in sort of a kind of normal sense, but rather, but they but they do have important effects in in in, in or they used to in, in in combat. Of course, that's all been changed by by weaponry and and a lot of physical a lot of sports. I think also I argue are really about teaching people good sportsmanship, which is really about controlling aggressive aggression, right? You know, if the other team scores a goal, it's not appropriate to, to beat them up. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's it, we're sort of socializing our. It's how did you describe it? It's we are reactively. No, we're not reactively aggressive. We're proactively aggressive. That's right. Yes. Yeah, that so, correct. Correct. That's okay. right. Yeah, so 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 there's two kinds of aggression: reactive aggression, which is when you just kind of spontaneously react to something. Like if you if you stole my book, I'd I'd, I'd smack you right without thinking. Right, that's reactive aggression. And proactive aggression is what is premeditated and planned. And and what 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 we are really good at is is controlling reactive aggression. 
and and but we use proactive aggression right that's what war is about that's what sports are often about and and i mm -hmm. think sports one of the roles of sports in many societies is to teach people not to be reactively aggressive it's not appropriate to, to bash somebody if they score a goal on you right or hit the mm -hmm. referee or to complain that you lost the game instead you you you, you behave honorably right and you, and you work together as a team to defeat to defeat the enemy Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. So going back to sort of the beginning of the book and the basics of exercise, when we, th we think about, you know, obviously the book in, in a way is a, a petition or it, it's stressing as much as we are loath to do it, how important it is to move our bodies in a moderate way, right? We don't need to overexert ourselves or kill ourselves on the daily, but we need to walk or run. I know you're a runner. I'm a terrible runner, so I took your tips in the book to heart, and I'm going to try and figure out how to run like a normal person. But, and is the idea, you know, obviously we have an obesity epidemic, rampant metabolic syndrome, et cetera. Is that just simply being outpaced by the food system and sort of the way that we're living as modern humans rather than as much emphasis being put on being sedentary? Because I feel like that seems to be yeah. what what's commonly pointed to? Well, right now we're suffering from just a raft of chronic illnesses, right? Heart mm -hmm. disease and cancers and obesity and metabolic disease like diabetes. And, and the list is really very long and extremely depressing. And, and of course, like all diseases, there are multiple causes, right? There are interactions between the genes that we inherit and the environments that we live in. And, and a major component of, of, of the environments, of course, is the food that we eat, right? We eat too much and or at least some people eat too much and they get foods that are, aren't particularly healthy. They're very processed and they're loaded with sugar and fat and things like that. And, and it doesn't do anybody good. And everybody knows that. That's not like a surprise, right? You don't need, you don't, mm -hmm. you need a professor to tell you that. But physical activity also plays a role. And, and it's, you know, it's been known for thousands of years. I mean, you don't, you don't need to, to read a fancy book to realize that exercise is good for you. But in terms of a lot of these, these chronic illnesses, turns out that physical activity, exercise, is really important for reducing our vulnerability. And it does so in many different ways. One is to, it, it doesn't so much, exercise is not the best way to lose weight, but I think we spend too much time thinking about exercise in relationship to weight loss. If you, if you really want to lose weight, a diet is, is the best way to go, right? But mm -hmm. exercise is extraordinarily important in helping you prevent weight regain, which is the big problem with most diets. So people lose the weight. It's not easy, but they do lose the weight and then it comes back again. But study after study has shown that if you exercise and you continue to exercise after the diet is over, it helps you prevent weight regain. And exercise also just helps prevent weight gain in the first place. So that's probably one of the big benefits of exercise. But but it also has all kinds of, you know, myriad other benefits because it turns on all kinds of of repair and maintenance mechanisms that, that are good for us. It turns on molecules like this one called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is like has been described as miracle grow for the brain. It you know helps keep your brain cells happy and, and healthy and helps and may and may help prevent Alzheimer's, for example. Exercise is by far the, the best way to prevent Alzheimer's. Exercise is really important for preventing heart disease and and it, it, it kind of recharges your muscles so that you can regain the sensitivity to insulin, which is the problem in diabetes. The list is long and very, very, mm -hmm. very extraordinary. But but you know, physical activity is an important component. It's not the only component of a healthy lifestyle, but it's a, it is an important component. And we don't need to distinguish between exercise versus diet. We should be talking about exercise and diet, but we need to be doing something in a kind of compassionate way to recognize that that you know it's not easy to do and, and people have people struggle to lose weight and they struggle to exercise. And that's not because there's anything wrong with them. That's because 
it's 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 we never evolved to lose weight. We never evolved to to, to you know exercise, which is needless discretionary physical activity. Right, and I think it has been presented culturally as a panacea and something that should be enjoyed, you know, that something there's oh, yeah. an expectation of enjoyment. And, you know, my dad is a, he's retired, but he was a pulmonologist and a primary care physician for a lot of people who are aging, had a lot of chronic diseases. And, you know, his point was people would, were so confused, right? They'd be like, oh, I don't understand. Like I walk on a treadmill for 25 minutes a day. And he's, and he's like, but that, that's like not even a Snickers, you know, <laughs> I think in our minds, we, th- we think, you know, that we've exerted ourselves and thus we can eat whatever we want. And it's kind of unfortunate that we yeah. can't. Yeah. So if, you know, if you walk a mile, you spend about 50 calories. And if you run that mile, you spend about 100 calories. That's just a, a rough approximation. Of course, it depends on your, on how much you weigh, but you know, 50 calories is is like nothing, right? You know, it's I don't know what a Snickers bar is, but it's 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 probably several hundred calories, right? There's no way. Right. So if you, if it's just about calories in, calories out, exercise is not is not going to really do it. But and and furthermore, exercise is not going to completely prevent you from getting heart disease and you know completely prevent you from getting other diseases. But the evidence is unquestionable. It lowers your risk. It lowers your vulnerability to a wide range of diseases. And we have study after study after study. Which shows that you know your chances of living longer and your chances, of, but more importantly, your chances of staying healthy, right? Of preserving your health, of maintaining vitality and vigor, go way up as you exercise, and those benefits get more important as we get older. And it's never too late to start. Like as you know, my dad obviously was big into the preventing or stopping smoking movement in some ways, and I'm like, but you're the way that everyone talks about smoking cessation. I don't, I think it's kind of wrong, which is it's not too late to stop. Your lungs will recover. And I feel like people were always loath to share that message because somehow it felt like they were condoning smoking. And obviously things can happen in the time that you're smoking where you're increasing risk. And I'm not, I'm not an expert in this. However, I'm like, you're, you're bearing the lead, which is that if you're 35 and you've been smoking for 10 years, yes, you need to stop, but your, your lungs will rebuild themselves. And same with exercise, like if you're older and you start exercising for the first time in your life, you're still going to reap a lot of the rewards, right? We, it's sort of, we think things are zero sum games. Like I've been lazy, therefore I'm irredeemable. Absolutely. So (laughs) one of the famous studies on on this topic was the aerobic center longitudinal study. So Kenneth Cooper's clinic, he's the guy who invented the term aerobics and his uh, center has been tracking people for, I think since the 1970s, they have thousands and thousands of people they've studied and, and they've shown that, that people who, who are regularly fit and exercise have much, much, much lower rates of mortality than people who never exercise, but people who start exercising later on in life get a lot of benefit from it and they, they, they do much, much, much better. And, uh, you know, study after study shows the same thing. And, and the important thing to recognize if you're, if you're one of those folks out there and like, let's, let's face it, 80% of Americans don't get the minimum levels of, of, of exercise that are recommended by the government, right? So, so our government, the World Health Organization, the American Heart Association, every major organization on the planet recommends that we try to get 150 minutes a week. And by most estimates, maybe a quarter of Americans do that. So, so one out of four. So for the rest of the 75%, they're like, well, they're, they're obviously struggling to exercise. But it turns out that, you know, even a little bit has enormous benefit. If you just exercise an hour a week, that can lower your, your rate of, of getting of, of, of mortality, age-adjusted mortality, by about 30 to 40%. That's just an hour a week. And, and 150 minutes a week, which is just 21 minutes a day, can lower your rate of death by about 50%. That's an enormous benefit from a really a pretty modest amount of exercise. Of course, more will give you more benefit, So, but you don't need to do crazy amounts to get an enormous, wonderful mm-hmm. benefit. It's you know, 21 minutes a day is not a lot. Most people can do it. It's just, they're just kind of, you know, unmotivated and confused and lack the kind of support to get started. And what qualifies? Like, what's that in that twenty-one minutes? Is it a brisk walk enough? Or anything. I know weights yeah, anything. are important. It doesn't matter. Yeah, if you're if you're very unfit, anything is better. You know, a walk. You know, going around the block a few times is great. And you know, as you get fitter, you can you can increase your intensity. You know, the important point is that some is better than none, and and we don't have to be. 
he's super prescriptive about it. It depends on who you are and what your your health state is. Right. There, there's there's no point of there's no kind of exercise that's you know if you're at that level there's nothing that's not going to be beneficial. And if so, let's say that you're sort of you reach a, a pretty good level of of fitness and what in your I know you're not a medical doctor, but what would you prescribe? Like a couple of days of weights and a little brisk jog or walk or? Well, yeah. So I really avoid those kinds of prescriptions, not only because I'm not a doctor, because I don't think doctors should be making those kinds of prescriptions because there is no there is no one dose of exercise. And that's like saying how much happiness should we have, right? It's It doesn't work that way, right? So, some is better than none and more is a little bit better. But it all depends on who you are and what your goals are. Are you are you old? Are you young? Are you super busy? Do you have two jobs? Do you have lots of kids? Are you worried about Alzheimer's? Are you worried about heart disease? Are you worried about diabetes? Are you worried about osteoporosis? I mean, you know, we're all different. And so trying to come up with a simple prescription is not going to work. And furthermore, what really matters is what you enjoy. And yeah. ultimately, if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to do it, right? So again, I, I think that, you know, I don't, I understand why we've medicalized exercise. It, you know, we live in a world where we medicalize a lot of stuff and we've commodified it, we've commercialized <laughs> yeah. it. But but clearly medicalizing exercise has not worked, right? If if three quarters of Americans don't do it, <laughs> then then we're then we're clearly not working. You know, we're not we're not doing it effectively. So I think that you know, this this kind of notion that we should prescribe certain amounts and doses of, of exercise is is not really helpful for most individuals. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I loved the sort of this, the Harvard study that you cited where they looked at alumni because I thought it was really interesting because there, mm. there's also sort of a bell curve, right? Like there's, there is an optimal amount. And then if you get more than that, that's great. It's not necessarily going to limit. It's not like you can limit your risk to the point of zero. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I mean, you can't exercise is not the fountain of youth. It's not a magic bullet. Right. It's not going to prevent you from getting old and dying. We're all that, that's like death and taxes. It's all going to happen to us. Well, at least uh, to most of us, at least in terms of taxes. But, but you no, know, that that Harvard study, that alumni study, was the first really major epidemiological study on 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 exercise, and and it was a clever study because Paffenberger, Ralph Paffenberger, who was the person who did it, realized that alumni from a place like Harvard are fantastic group to study because because you know Harvard never lets them go right because they're always asking <laughs> they're always asking their alums for money right so so they totally. so they're in constant contact with these people right and he realized so we got the Harvard alumni office to let them um, let them ask these alums about their health and their exercise habits and then he followed them for for decades and found that the ones who exercised more were healthier and lived longer than the ones who exercised less. And and the really key thing that Paffenberger found was that the older you were, the more the benefit was. So uh, mm. he didn't really find an optimum. What he found was that as you got older, a basic level was even more important. And, yeah. and you know, the, and there is no simple optimum. You can't calculate that. You know, one debate out there is, you know, if, if you can exercise too much, and there's a lot of, you know, back and forth about that, particularly in terms of hearts. But, you know, the fact of the matter is there's, we're talking about a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of humanity that's at risk of exercising too much. You know, the, the vast majority of us are at risk of exercising too little. And it's not really a, a major medical concern for, for, for most of humanity. Right. I love in terms of sort of finding, finding the carrots and the sticks for getting people to exercise. And, you know, obviously you talk a lot about how communal it is and how important that can be because when someone's waiting for you at the gym, you're much less likely to mm. show them up. But I love the story of your friend. I'd never heard of this website, stickk.com. Stick.com. That's such a funny story. I love it. Will you tell it? Sure. So it's a friend of mine who was struggling to walk. And to get more walking in. And so she, you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, it's, a, it's called a commitment contract. A commitment contract is when you, when you, you commit to, 
to to doing something, you have like a referee or you put some, you have some stakes at it, right? So, you know, education is a kind of a commitment contract. People pay money for me to force them to learn stuff and to give them exams and stuff like that, right? They're, They're paying for me to torture them, right? So in this particular kind of commitment contract, which you can do through a website called stick.com with a stick with two Ks. She, I think, gave like $2,000 to this website and her husband was her referee. And if she didn't walk, I don't remember how many miles a week, as her husband attested, the website would automatically send $50 that week to the NRA. And she hates the NRA. It's like, of all the organizations on the planet, it's like, it's for her like anathema, right? And so for her, it was a very powerful stick, right? It was a motivator for her not to miss a week of, 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 her, of her walking. And, and it's worked really well for her. I mean, you know, you, could, you can pick whatever stick you want or whatever carrot you want, but that's a kind of in a way how exercise always worked, right? If you didn't, if you weren't physically active, well, I mean, you, I mean, it wasn't like you know hunter gatherers would have you know money from their bank account sent to the NRA, but you know you wouldn't get enough food, right? You wouldn't have enough enough to eat. You, your family would suffer. So, so we've been exercising because of sticks for for years, and I think the the trick for us is to find something like, you know, where you donate money to the NRA, if you don't like the NRA, it might be a little bit extreme, but all of us can find various other kinds of commitment contracts that we could that we could use to help us, to help motivate ourselves. For me, that's why I sign up for races. It's not that I love races, but it forces me to train. I also have a running buddy and, you know, I often meet him in the morning and it's cold and dark and miserable. And I never want to be out there at six in the morning, ever. You know, no way. I'd rather be in bed with my wife. But but if I don't go, I'll leave him standing on the corner. And, and so I have to go. And and that's another kind of commitment contract. And, and I think people who are really effective at exercising find all kinds of ways to get them to get going. Because once you get started, then the benefits start to kick in, right? So right. the Your reward of exercise- Exactly. The dopamine that makes you feel like you had a great time doing it, sadly, that doesn't occur before you exercise. That only occurs after you exercise. So we need to get ourselves out the door. But then I always know that when I come back from that run or going to the gym, whatever, that I'm glad I did it. And so and so that's the reward afterwards. Totally. But, you know, it's obviously it's the very beginning of January and we're all in New Year's resolution land, although I've, I stopped setting those long ago, in part because they're not concrete. And so I love the idea of, of stick.com. Like as a family, I've told this story before, but my dad, the one who was, you know, he's laser focused on weight, almost to the point of being really annoying. But he would see in his practice, patients would gain five, 10 pounds a year until suddenly they're in a little bit of trouble. And then it's very hard to lose 40 pounds. Mm. And so he and my mom <laughs> signed, they, they made a co-commitment to each other when they got married, that they would weigh in every year <laughs> at the same weight. And then they wow. each had this like discretionary pool of money that they would get. And so they kind of gave it up eventually, but it it worked. So that's, they're that's very- amazing. That's amazing. Well, whatever funny. works, whatever works. I mean, you know. <laughs> Everybody's different, right? We all have different ways to motivate each other. But I, but again, I think it's – but you've given another example in which it's social, right? In this case, it's right. husband and a wife. And I think that, you know, we – you know, so often our image of exercising is, you know, you go to the gym and you plug yourself in with your iPod or, you know, you're, you're, you know you listen to a podcast or like maybe this one or you watch something on TV, whatever, and you're very solitary. But, you know, think about the things that give us, most of us pleasure. I mean, it, you know, it can be fun to meditate on a run or a walk and whatever, but a lot one of the, the ways that we help each other do things is, is by is, is socially right doing them in groups and of course in this in this pandemic where we're all isolated it's become super hard and we have to find new and creative ways like you know like my wife has been exercising on on zoom with with people right you know I mean who'd have thunk that she would have exercised on zoom but you know it works and they interact and they have fun and it helps them motivate each other and and that's great. Yeah. No, totally. And I think I I need to find my path clearly because I was a big like dance cardio person with friends. And so that was my cathartic release. And I did it as much because it was fun as I did for the conversations after. So I need to it's been nine months. I can probably figure out (laughs) how to how to find that sense of community online. But it's certainly hard. And I, I doubt I'm alone and and not really moving. No, it's hard. I mean, like I, I have a my 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 phone right has one of those little step counters, right? 
And, you know, I'm a reasonably physically active person, but my, my average daily steps have, have plunged by more than 50% because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going anywhere, right? So the only physical activity I'm getting is when I basically head out the door and go for a run or, you know, work on a machine or whatever. And if, you know, you're missing that, you're, you know, you're going to become very, very physically inactive because a lot of physical activity is not about exercise. It's about all the other stuff that we do. Right. No, certainly. I mean, I think in a normal moving around, you get what, like 5,000, 6,000 steps? In, yeah, it depends in... on the person. Yeah. I mean, the average American yeah. gets about 4,000 steps a day, not exercising. Right. Okay. So absent, absent going, going anywhere, it's hard. It is really hard to do that. Yeah. So I thought it was really helpful at the end when you break down by disease. And I know we talked a little bit about metabolic syndrome, but can we talk a bit about cancer and specifically that study of 650,000 elderly adults. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, of all the diseases that strikes terror into many people's hearts, and certainly mine is no exception, cancer is number one, right? That's the one disease I'm most worried about. And, and, you know, we, we, you know, we're, we, we think so much about, you know, getting, when we get cancer, we want to nuke it, you want to treat it with chemotherapy, et cetera. But, but the other approach that we really need to take more to cancer is to prevent it in the first place. And, mm-hmm. and I know that people like me sound like a broken record, but this is really where the, some of the huge benefits of, of exercise are. Is that it's, it's, it's very preventative for, for a number of forms of cancer. And, and the numbers are all over the place, and you can't give an exact number because it depends on, on your sex and your age, and et cetera. And, but, but, you know, Breast cancer rates, for example, just you know, moderate, just 150 minutes a week of, of physical activity can, by some estimates, can lower your risk of breast cancer by 30% or more. That's huge, right? If you can mm-hmm. lower your risk of breast cancer by getting out and walking 20, 30 minutes a day, I mean, how many, not, not enough people know that. Colon cancer and, and prostate cancer, and the, the list goes on. It's, it's really quite remarkable. And we even know some of the mechanisms by, by which exercise is beneficial in terms of preventing or helping to prevent cancer. Again, it's not a magic bullet. It's not going to totally prevent it, but it really does reduce people's risks. And and so, you know, there's lots and lots of epidemiological studies. There's method. There's 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 hardcore sort of mechanistic studies. You know, we have an abundant amount of evidence that you know part of our armamentarium to fight cancer and to, is to prevent it. And a chief way of doing that is to is to stay physically active. Right. And we we sort of started talking about chronic diseases at the beginning of the conversation. But what we're experiencing collectively is that our life expectancy. Well, theoretically, our life expectancy is is kind of typical with hunter-gatherers, right? There was just a lot more childhood mortality. Mm-hmm. Like there were, and so it brought that, the, the average down. Correct. But now that we're sort of over that hump, we, we're not essentially living longer. And not only are we not living longer, we're spending the last, what, 10 years of our life battling multiple chronic diseases. Yeah, yeah. Big misconception about, about hunter-gatherers and our ancestors is, is about life expectancy. So it's true that until recently, people didn't, live as long as we did today. And that's partly because of, of agriculture. Once farming was invented and people started living in villages and towns and didn't have good sanitation and, and, and you know, you know, disease was just rampant, you know, uh, smallpox and tuberculosis and, you know, the list goes on. Of course, we're now seeing that again with COVID. But, but hunter-gatherers, if they survive infancy um, and childhood, they tend to live about you know, two decades after after they stop reproducing. So they live into their 70s. And, you know, we're a little higher than that in the United States today. Most Americans, of course, depending upon on where you live, what your zip code is and, and how much money you have. And so there's a lot of inequalities in terms of health health span and um, lifespan. But but that's the other dif- distinction is that is that we often measure lifespan, but we don't really measure health span. And, as, and we are living longer, but we also living a longer portion of that life with chronic diseases. And so I think it's important to distinguish between health span and lifespan. And again, that's where physical activity comes in because physical activity it, it, it extends your health span so that you spend less of your time towards the end of your life morbidly ill. There's a very famous physician researcher at Stanford named Jim Freeze who coined the term compression of morbidity. Morbidity is illness. And so what exercise does is it compresses, shortens the time at which we're, we're ill towards the end of our lives. And it means that we spend more of your life vital and vigorous and healthy and enjoying yourself. Mm-hmm. And partly, you know, that's the, we, we touched on it a little bit, but that when you stress your muscles or, or t- you know, stress your body, it goes into repair mode. It's similar mm. to like a, a medicalized fast, right? Like your body 
sort of jumps to and starts cleaning itself up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, I mean, it's fascinating. If you really, there, you know, why is it that exercise is so so healthy? And the answer is it's it's stressful, but it's a normal kind of stress. It's a stress that our bodies expect, what we call a eustress. And you know, so when you exercise, you're you're kind of, you know, you're producing your mitochondria, which are the little sort of a kind of you know energy, the batteries of your of your cells, right? They're producing what's called reactive oxygen species. They're producing molecules that 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 kind of rust your your body, right? And you're producing, you're causing inflammation, and you're kind of tearing your muscles and cracking your bones, and you know denaturing your proteins. You're doing all kinds of bad stuff when you exercise. Your body temperature goes up. But but our bodies are adapted to that. And so we turn on all kinds of repair and maintenance mechanisms that that not, not only fight those stresses, but actually keep keep our bodies going really well. So it's like I, the analogy I use is like if you spill something on the floor and then you you clean it up, the floor is then cleaner after you, you the, the initial spill, right? And, and, right? and and the thing is we didn't evolve to turn on a lot of those repair and maintenance mechanisms in the absence of exercise because we didn't evolve not to be phys- to be physically active on a regular basis, right? So so you you've got to turn on those stresses in order to turn on, you know, to get your body to produce its own antioxidants, to get your body to produce anti-inflammatories, to get your you know, it turns out your muscles are the major producer of anti-inflammatories. You know, people are taking garlic and turmeric and all kinds of stuff. The best way to quell an, uh, uh, inflammation in your body is just turn on your muscles. You don't need to spend anything. There's also interesting experiments to show that you know if you if you go out and buy antioxidants, you actually blunt the response of your body to exercise in terms of its produ- producing antioxidants on, on your own. So you get less less benefit. So so it's, it turns out to be just a you know it's free. There's no side effects and it has manifold benefits. You turn on you know thousands of genes that have all kinds of positive beneficial effects. I know you're a runner, and the book is really does, I have to say, make a very compelling case for running. And I, I need to <laughs> I need to rethink my my relationship with running. But I also thought it was really helpful that you you punctured the myth about running and which is something I've always believed that it sort of wears out your body. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we have this wear and tear myth with running, right? That it's, uh, you know, it's like like using your car too much, right? You know, you like you wear out the shock absorbers and that you're like wearing out the, the shock absorbers in your joints, which are the, which is the cartilage. But turns out that's a myth. It's just not true. It's, runners do injure their knees sometimes. It's the most common side of injury. I mean, you can't, you can't, you know, everything has costs and benefits and Exercise does risk injury. We all know that, but but the idea that it wears out your joints is just not true. And in fact, the studies show that many studies show that runners are not more likely to get arthritis in their knees. In fact, they're if anything, they're slightly less likely to get arthritis in their knees. The problem mm. is that once you do get arthritis, running really will exacerbate it. It's excruciating. It's painful and it's difficult. So we shouldn't blame running on people getting knee OA. If anything, running may help you prevent it. But once you do get knee arthritis, then then that's a challenge and, and, and we need to find ways to help people get physically active because then you get into that kind of classic, you know, vicious cycle, right? When you, because you can't exercise and then, and then, and then your body more rapidly deteriorates. So I know you don't want to be prescriptive, but if someone, so say someone like me is going to start running, the idea is to add just a tiny bit of distance at a time, right? And then yeah. can you sort of explain those four sort of the four elements of good running form? Yeah. So I think part of the problem with running is that it's a skill and we don't teach people how to run anymore, right? You know, there, there are great ways to swim and the right ways to climb a tree and the right ways to, to, you know, play tennis and all that. And running, I don't think is any different. I think there's good running form and bad running form. And we just kind of tell people just, you know, put on a pair of shoes and go run. And and sometimes actually the shoes might be part of the problem because they're so cushioned, you can't really feel what you're doing. So to me, like good running form involves a few elements. The first is you should have good posture. You shouldn't be leaning forward too much. You want to have a high cadence. So so good runners get, you know, run about 170 to 180 steps a minute. You can use your iPhone or a metronome or something like that to kind of get you to do that you want to you want to not overstride so you want to you don't want to stick your leg out too much so good if you if you mm. kind of get your knees up that kind of that solves that problem 
And then finally, you want to land with a relatively flat foot. And, and if you're barefoot, you're going you're gonna to definitely land on the ball of your foot. If you're wearing a cushioned shoe, you might like heel strike, but you're not going to land really hard, right? So, so you don't want to crash into the ground. If you, somebody like, sounds like an elephant when they're running, that's not a good sound, right? That's, that's, that's a collision happening with each step, right? And that collision can't be good, right? So you want right. to run lightly and gently. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I don't, I don't think barefoot running is a panacea, but I think it's one of the things that we can learn about just taking your shoes off every once in a while, because you can't run, you can't run that way when you're barefoot, right? It just hurts, right? And so learning some of those barefoot running, I think can help teach people some of the skills of running, which you can apply to yourself, either whether you're, whether you're wearing a shoe or not. Yeah. So interesting. Cause I, as a tall person with long legs, I think I just, I'm sure I overstride. I think I thought that that was what I was supposed to, <laughs> supposed to do. So you mentioned posture and just like a couple, a few more myths in the book that I think are really interesting. You talk about them set, sitting, obviously, because the book is partly about how we are sedentary, but that sitting is part of hunter gatherer life as well. And that this idea that our posture is responsible for back pain is not correct. That's just that you know that totally surprised me when I was working on that section of the book because that's not a that's not something I work on. And and when I started reading the literature, I was just amazed to start reading that there's you know when people slouch and you know we're all told to sit up straight and you know have good posture. You know we we've kind of confused cause and effect. It turns out that the reason people slouch is that their backs aren't very strong, and so it's mm-hmm. you know slouching basically you know, makes it, you know, you're basically spending less muscular effort to sit. So which is why, which is why we like to slouch. But it turns out that slouching itself doesn't cause uh, back pain. There's study after study after study. Rather, slouching is a, is a kind of a, like a, a symbol or a, a signal that maybe you have a weak back. And it's, and it's back strength, particularly back endurance, that seems to be really important in terms of preventing a lot of kinds of back pain. So, so don't blame. So if you, if you know, if you're, if you're slouching in your chair, you know, that's not going to give you a backache, but if you're, if your back is really weak, which, which is why you end up slouching, well, that might be, that might be a problem. Got it. And then the other, you know, I love to sleep and prioritize it and have been very happy that everyone's suggesting that we get far too less, but I thought that was also fascinating that hunter gatherers or foragers, they, they get like six hours a night. Right. Yeah, I mean, so you know, I think again, we we have this very uncompassionate sort of stressful way of anxiety-provoking way of of dealing with health (laughs) issues, right, in our society, and and that's part of this kind of prescriptive commodification of of health, right? And and one of them is you need eight hours of sleep, and I always thought you needed eight hours of sleep, and I actually started that chapter because I was curious, you know, if we're told to sit less, why are we told to sleep more? That was really what. What, what got me interested in, in that topic. And I was fascinated to read that, you know, just contrary to what we're told, which is that, you know, in the modern world, because of Thomas Edison and electric light bulbs and computers and TV and cell phones, like, you know, that's robbed us of our sleep. Turns out that people who don't have any of those things, who don't have electricity and cell phones and TVs, they don't sleep any more than we do, right? They sleep, you know, six, seven hours max, and and f- so so there's really no evidence that 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 we've actually we're sleeping less now because of of all this of all this technology, and and then to my surprise, when I started looking at the epidemiological literature, there's no evidence that eight hours is optimal. If you look at curves that plot, you know, essentially hours of sleep on the on the on the on the horizontal axis, and and like you're likely to heart disease, for example, on the on the on the on the vertical axis, right? And this is sleep that's been measured rather than self-reported, because you know if you tell if, you, if I told you how much I slept last night, I, I'd be wrong, right? Because I, I was asleep. How would I know, right? But if you actually use measured sleep, it turns out that there's a U-shaped curve, and the bottom of that curve is, if you know, this is for a population, is about seven hours. So, so more people do better on seven hours than any other amount, right? And of course, there are probably some people who do best on eight, and some people maybe who can just get by just fine with with six. But seven turns out to be, for most people. The sweet spot. Well, I am recovering from COVID, but I slept nine hours last night. Well, sure. So. And when you're sick, <laughs> yeah, when you're sick, you're, you're using your immune system is using a lot of energy, right? And so that's, that's, that's an important time to get a lot of sleep. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 
And the other thing is that exercise helps us sleep, right? You, you sleep yeah. better. We all know that. You sleep better. Because here's the other pernicious thing about all this sleep stuff is that we, we make people stressed about it, right? We tell them that you're not getting enough sleep, right? So what does that do? It, it, it makes you psychosocially stressed. Psychosocial stress causes cortisol levels to rise. Cortisol, it doesn't cause stress. It's released by stress. But cortisol keeps you alert. And so cortisol prevents you from sleeping, and 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 then we end up treating the symptoms of the of the stress rather than the causes, and and totally. drive the system forward. And so we we now we you know we spend a fortune on sleeping stuff. You know we have these super comfortable mattresses, and you know and we have you know we isolate ourselves in these dark rooms with thick curtains and no noise, and you know devices we clip on our noses and God knows what, right? And 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 yet our ancestors managed to sleep, you know, in the saddle, you know, or, or in, in like heaps on the floor and the ground, you know, without any of this stuff, you know, you can sleep in all kinds of uh, environments if you're not stressed about it, but we make ourselves stressed. Yeah. It's funny to me how we sort of romanticize our ancestors and adopt certain things that we maintain are like, you have to eat like this, you have to, you know, but we, but we are also prioritize our comfort in a way that wasn't available or I don't know. It's funny. It's like, it, I don't, we, we like to pick and choose, I guess. Yes. And, and we glorify <laughs> comfort. I mean, look, everybody like, I mean, I, I always prefer flying business class to economy, right? I mean, comfort is nice, but comfort isn't necessarily good for us. But lack of right. comfort isn't necessarily virtuous either or, or necessarily good for us. We, we have a very bizarre relationship to or attitude towards comfort. It's true. So what do you, as someone who thinks about this and studies, you know, sort of modern day, the people who are closest to our ancestors and the way that they live, like, how would you, what, what do you think is essential for bringing forward? I know you don't want to be prescriptive, but I guess it's the instinct to override our instinct to sit. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, just just like we need to be, we need to be sort of kind to ourselves and realize that, you know, we didn't evolve to be healthy. We evolved mm. to have lots of offspring, and we have all kinds of instincts that we that we inherited from our ancestors that that made sense in a very different kind of world where we had to be physically active, where we didn't have access to to, to abundant you know calories and lots of salt and you know fiber free foods and all that. And today, now because of the world that we've created for ourselves, which is replete with abundance and comfort and all kinds of other wonderful things, we now have to choose to do various things, to choose various behaviors that benefit us, but aren't necessarily instinctive, right? So, you know, when you're in, in a, the next time you're in a mall and there's an escalator and a stairway, right? Your instinct is going to be to take the escalator, even though, of course, there were no escalators in the Stone Age, right? But it's an instinct to, to save that energy, right? And that little voice that tells you, take the escalator, right? We have to re- listen to ourselves and re- realize that that instinct is normal and natural, but it's our job if we you know, to, to kind of override that and that there are yeah. benefits to overriding that. But there's nothing wrong with you if you want to take the escalator. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't need to exercise, you know, hours and hours a day and, and you don't have to throw away all the chairs in your house and only use a standing desk. But, you know, a, a little bit goes a long way. Yeah. I loved that. I know we're out of time, but I loved that sort of the study that you did at the convention for <laughs> people like you and found that people like you take the escalator at the same rate as average people sure. in the mall. Sure, we're still human <laughs> beings. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for your book and for your time today and stay well. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Daniel Lieberman. For more from Daniel, please check out his book, Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.